Advent. For some of you, you guys have been around Greenhouse for a while or other churches, or you're kind of used to the tradition of Advent. But Advent is basically, it's a time of preparation and anticipation. We all get excited about Christmas, right? But but it's a time of preparing and anticipating the meaning of Christmas. If you're like Nick and I, you have most of your Christmas decorations up, right? You you kind of you rise from the from the food-induced slumber of Thanksgiving and you rally and you pull all the Christmas decorations out. Um, it was awesome. We have ours up on our garage, and and I'm like, goodness, how many boxes do we have up here, right? And the kid, the, the boys were helpful in staging them, and then Nicole is just going like a beast, you know, she's like, yeah, all of a sudden, boom, in a couple hours, our house looks so nice and festive and everything like that. You start making Christmas lists and you start thinking about, okay, what are we going to do there? We're going to start looking at travel plans. And then the fun part is in the evening, you're sitting and thinking, okay, how are we going to pay for all this? Right? So, so Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. We're ready for Christmas, right? That's Christmas, right? Well, not all of it. That's, that's kind of a part of what we bring to it. But in fact, it's not the biggest and most important part. Christmas is about finding hope. Advent is a time where we prepare for that hope. If you have your Bibles this morning, or if you have your, your Bible app, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. It's, it's uh, one of the very common Christmas passages, but Matthew chapter one, this is the beginning of the New Testament. It goes like this. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. This is a page turner. This is exciting. There is nothing more fun than a family gathering when you have to go through the entire genealogy of, wait, was was uncle so-and-so? No, that was your great-great-uncle. Well, you know, it's sort of like, how is everybody connected, right? I mean, what an th- enthralling way to start the Christmas story, let alone the entire New Testament, right? Like genealogy. Some of us are like, oh yeah, this is exciting. Others of us are like, I don't even know who my grandpa was, right? But but this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah. Matthew sets the stage with this boring genealogy list, right? And, and he goes through, I mean, we're talking like, like 15 verses of, of genealogy, and finally, he gets to Jesus. And then we pick it up in um, verse 17. I'll spare you all the mispronunciation of, of names there, right? But we're going to pick back up in verse 17. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Verse 18, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If in your Bible's like mine, if it actually, the word Jesus, the name Jesus means the Lord saves. And that was to be this little kid's name. 
Now, this is a a really familiar Christmas passage, right? And it's easy to kind of miss the significance of what's going on here. Why the genealogy? What's going on? I've never really paid much attention. I mean, I knew, yeah, Abraham to David um, to Jesus, right? But there's this interesting part in there, 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, 14 from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. There's something really foundational going on here. Abraham, who's Abraham? What's the significance? Well, Abraham is the one who God said, you are my chosen people. I choose you. You will be my people. I will be your God. He chooses them. He calls them out. Abraham wasn't this devoted follower of Jesus. Jesus hadn't even been incarnated yet, right? And and he was just a pagan dude that was roaming around in the desert. And God chooses Abraham and says, I'm going to establish my covenant, my people through you. That's the promise. Then 14 generations later comes King David, right? King Saul is the first king and and he kind of screws it up. But then David comes and David is this military conqueror. I mean, Saul Saul had slain thousands, but David tens of thousands, right? Like he is a military genius. He is a conquering king. He takes the nation of Israel and expands it through the promised land. and, And he is the guy. I mean, King David is the guy. And, and that's the fulfillment of this prophet or prophet, right? It's like the 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 uh, the heyday of Israel is going on then. But then David, as conquering as he was, it was interesting because then his son Solomon, where David was about military leadership and unifying the nation and solidifying it, Solomon, his son, actually focuses on peace and growth and development. And so Solomon, who's this wise king, he takes things and he makes the nation really, really good and easy, right? Well, the interesting thing that happens, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, turns things pretty ugly and the nation splits. You have Israel to the north and Judah to the south. It's a divided kingdom. Now God's chosen people are fighting amongst themselves and they're falling away. And what's interesting is that both kingdoms struggled with bad leadership and people went astray over and over and over again. And you have these generation after generation of of this promise, the heyday, and now the dissolution, right? And, and that quote, I don't know if you ever heard the quote, I know it's kind of a controversial one, but I think there's a lot of stuff that we can learn from it, is that hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. It seems to apply, doesn't it? Is that things were so good, and what do we do with it? We waste it. We, we, we turn our back on the very God who gives us the gifts that he gives because we think, oh, I want the gift, not the giver. Well, things get so bad that in 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel is carried off into exile to the Assyrian Empire. I mean, an entire half the chosen people of God are taken into exile. They are destroyed. They are demolished. They are, they are just wiped out, right? And they go into exile. Well, Judah, the southern kingdom, continued under bad king after bad king, until the boy king, Josiah, if any of you want an inspiration, um, an inspiring story, look, it's a short story, but, the, but Josiah is this boy king, and he comes, into, he comes into his leadership, and he's like looking around, he goes, oh, there's this temple that I've always heard about, and, and he goes in, and he looks through it, and somewhere locked in a storage cabinet are the scriptures, and he says, oh my goodness, we should probably read these, 
These are from the God who called us to be his people. And so he tries to bring this reform to the nation of saying, we need to serve the God that called us to be his people. And and Josiah is this valiant effort to restore the nation of Judah to the God that founded it. And it works for a little bit (laughs) because Josiah dies. And Josiah has three sons that basically re like turn everything over that he had restored. And so here's this king and, and things get bad, right? You have North is a part of Assyria. And as Josiah is the king, you have the Southern uh, Israel, uh, empire of Babylon, uh, Babylon, the Babylonian empire starts putting pressure on him, right? Well, as soon as Josiah dies, he has three sons that basically turn the kingdom back over. And then he even has a grandson that they just waste it all away. And they go into exile into Babylon in the year 586. Now, Matthew intentionally includes Abraham, the promise, to David, the heyday, to the exile, the fall. And I, and I, it, I can't believe I've never really caught this until this week, but it's very, very intentional because then they're in the lowest of the low. There's this one-two punch, right, of God's chosen people have separated. They couldn't stop fighting amongst each other. And instead of focusing on who God wants them to be, it's who we want to be. And we're going to chase after gods, and we're going to chase after gods, and we're going we're to rally around our leaders instead of the God that called us. And this is separation of the nation. But then one goes into exile, and then the other goes into exile. And then they go into obscurity for 14 generations. I mean, this is rough. They lose their nation. They lose their identity. They lose almost everything, right? And they're obscure for generation after generation. But in the middle of all this as it's happening is is Josiah and then his three sons and his grandson. There's this prophet in the Old Testament called Jeremiah. And prophets in the Old Testament were used as God's spokesman to his people, right? It's kind of like, um, hey, guys, let's pull our heads out because God wants us to do this and we're going over here. Um, and, and Jeremiah is trying to get the people's attention all the way from pre-exile Josiah all the way into Josiah, into, into exile. And so Jeremiah has seen the destruction of the nation and he sees them go into exile and they're giving up hope, right? They're like, well, what's the point of this? It's so interesting, but Jeremiah was given by God to guide, to encourage, and to warn them. One of Jeremiah's most famous uh, speeches is found in Jeremiah chapter 29. It's a passage of hope. And in this passage, we're going to see four specific things. Let's read Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. It says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Don't dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. 
That is what the hope is that, sorry, that is what the Lord of heaven, heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I've promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. Put ourselves in their shoes. Your nation has just been divided, half of it conquered, and now the other half conquered. You're being occupied by a foreign government. You have no freedom of religion. You have no sense of, we are God's chosen people. What, what did that get us? All that did was it put a bullet, a, a bullseye on our back, right? So where's our hope? Where can hope be found? Well, Jeremiah gives four specific instructions. Number one, he says, settle in for a while as God does his work. God said, I sent you into exile. Now, that doesn't sound very popular, right? We don't like consequences to our choices. We don't like discipline. We don't like punishment. We're self-made people. Nobody can tell us what to do. Well, God sent them into exile to learn a lesson. <laughs> Go into timeout for 70 years, Ezra, uh, Judah. <laughs> Nobody wants that. But yet he says, settle in. Well, God does his work. They might not like the situation, but he says, come to terms with it. Stop trying to deny it. Stop trying to, to, to get around what God is using to, to do his work, right? Jeremiah warned them over and over um, leading up to exile, but they didn't change. And now it's time for that change. They needed to put their trust in God and the process that he was going to use along the way. We need to let God do the work that God needs to do. But he also says, never forget, exile will not be the last word. God's up to something bigger. Number two, while they're there, seek the good of the community. What's good for the community was good for them, right? The, the, the community's welfare is your welfare. And so he says, don't, don't destroy the place that God has you right now. Then he takes it even further and he says, pray for the Babylonian neighbors. That's hard. That's really, really hard. And what's interesting is that uh, they're so used to going to the temple and praying for themselves and their own people, and then kind of making these cries out against their enemy, right? I mean, David did it, Solomon did it. Well, Solomon didn't do it as much, but David did a lot in his, in his Psalms. He's praising God for his goodness, but then he's like cursing his enemies, right? Because that's what we naturally do. And so that's why that's in the, in the Psalms. But what's interesting is that you have these pre-tremors of this new way of understanding and believing what God is doing, what Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, where Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who are persecuting you. That's mind-blowing. That is so counter-intuitive, uh, counter, uh, right? That's so unnatural for us. But yet here God is saying through Jeremiah, Pray for your Babylonian neighbors. 
This faith is bigger than ourselves. It's bigger than our people. It's bigger than our nation. It's bigger than those who think and act like us, right? God is up to something bigger. Number three, he says that while they're in Babylon or in exile, seek and find God. Instead of turning away from God and saying, well, God, if you're real, I wouldn't be here right now. He goes, no, I am real. And that's why you're here, because this is where you're going to find me. We don't like that. We do not like that. That doesn't preach very well, right? That's not very popular because we want God to, no, let's just skip to the part where he restores our fortunes, takes us back to our homeland and makes everything better again. We just want to skip right to that. But he says, in exile, in Babylon, seek and find God. I love how he says, pray and I'll listen, look and I'll be found. Even though they've lost their temple, their city, their nation, their government, their leaders, their national identity, they've lost everything, they hadn't lost God. What's really interesting in verses 8 and 9 where he says, he all of a sudden he's like, hey, look at this and blah, blah, blah. And then always says, and be careful for people who are whispering lies in my name. They're going to try to get you back into what got you into this situation in the first place. Don't listen to them. Those are lies. Stay away from anything that will lead you away from me. Don't allow yourself to be led astray again. We don't really have any details on what specifically he's talking about, but you can use your imagination that, that these people are using all sorts of different things to distract people from pursuing God and God only. Exile was a time of stripping away all the scaffolding. Anything that would attach itself to or try to replace God as their savior. And last number four, true hope is found in God. The focal point here, I believe, is verse 11. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, promises are only as powerful as the one who's making them, right? Who's making this promise that I am going to give you hope? I'm going to give you a future. It's the Lord of heaven's armies. It's almighty God. It is God himself, the creator of all things. He's the one who's making these promises. He's the one who says, allow me to do the work and you'll be amazed at what I can do. God is pointing to the promised one who would be born 14 generations later, right? To a virgin and her loving fiance. Generation after generation of hope would be fulfilled in the one God called the Lord saves. That's what he is calling them to find their hope in. God is constantly working behind the scenes about something that's bigger than us, bigger than our situation, and we can find true hope in that. What's interesting is that this passage is, is kind of dear to Nicole and I, because like we were, we were newly married. We had been married like six months. We were, she was finishing up school her last year in college and I was working construction and, and we were kind of like, okay, now what do, what do you want from us, God? Like I was, I, I graduated with a biblical studies and youth ministry major, and, and we had a lot of different opportunities 
um, uh, across the nation to go and do youth ministry at churches. And, and we're kind of like, oh my gosh. And I don't know, all these, all of a sudden the abundance of great opportunities became kind of this burden because we just are like, we got angsty. We're like, oh my gosh, we're like real adults. What do we do? You know, this is like a big decision. Where do we want to start our career at? Where do we want to start our family at? And, and we were kind of having a hard time. And I, I kind of think we just maybe got a little sideways with each other or whatever. And, and, and we were just kind of laying in bed that night and, and just trying to figure things out. And all of a sudden, it was like Jeremiah 29, 11. And, and for some reason, I didn't even really know what it was. So we got out the Bible and we read it. And it was kind of like, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans for hope and a future, right? And I was sort of like, wow, that was pretty good. That was really good. Babe, things are going to be okay. Like God's got this. He, he, he wants us in his will. And so we just need to continue to surrender him. Right. And we sort of like, okay, whew, we go to bed the next morning. I woke up, he goes, or she goes to school. I go to work. Um, and, uh, and I fell from 13 feet of scaffolding head first onto concrete. Nicole was at school and she gets a call saying, Jason's been in an accident uh, he's, he's, you know, non-responsive. He's in the emergency room in this tiny little town and she rushes over. And actually Allie's dad was the first one. Is that, is that right, babe? Allie Rod was the first one over. And, and so Rod's, uh, Rod, Allie's dad, uh, who is one of my best friends. And he's, he's there already like praying over me and Nicole comes in there and, and I'm just, I'm totally non-responsive. I'm, I'm like bleeding and, and just messed up and, and they have like all my stuff cut off and everything like that. And they don't, it's a small town. I don't know why they took me there. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm still alive, but um, I, I know it explains a lot, right? 13 feet head first on a concrete. Cause if my feet were at 13, my feet were about 20 feet and it was hard and concrete. The guy said my head bounced like a basketball. Um, and I remember afterwards I was in the hospital for about 10 days um, and miraculously there was no broken bones. I had some weird neurological stuff. I, I was really sore for a while and everything like that, but I, there's no lasting effects at all that I know of. So I remember like we were, we, I had Bell's palsy afterwards and, and I would like put spaghetti in one side of my mouth and it would come out the other. And it was kind of a mess, but like my body just took a while to kind of wake back up. And, um, and yeah, I just, it was, it was crazy. I was like, babe, am I, am I, am I back to normal? She goes, well, you're back to what you've always been, I guess. So there you go. So I still haven't quite figured that one out, but, but what's amazing is as her husband of six months wasn't able to, Hey, it's going to be okay, babe. It's going to be okay. We got this. We're okay. You know what was going through her mind? For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And that verse that God laid on our hearts the night before kept ringing through her head all day and the next day. And for four days as I was still non-responsive until I finally woke up. And then she beat me up. Just kidding. But isn't that God's goodness? Like, and even if I would have died, guess what? That verse would have still rung in her heart and in her head and reminded her that even if, even if I wouldn't have made it, or if I would have been permanently disabled or whatever, like God still has a will for our good that we can find hope in. 
We might not only always understand that, we might not always agree with that. We might think that we could do God's job better than him. But the reality is, is he says, I want you to find hope in me, knowing that I'm the creator of all things. I kind of know how to do some things. You can trust me. You can put hope that no matter what you're facing right now, I got this. I got you. That's real hope. And I think it's so poignant that he includes the promise, the heyday, and the worst period in Israel's history. Isn't that powerful? Because we don't know the power of hope until everything seems hopeless. It's so easy to put faith in our bank account, in our skill set, in my career path, in my relationship, in, 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 in our government, in our economy, in our possessions, in, in all sorts of things. We can put our hope in those things, but ultimately they'll disappoint us. Only God can do what God can do. Nobody else was designed to do that. Are we willing to surrender to that? So today, what is your exile? What is your Babylon? What is your situation where you're kind of like, I don't know, God. I mean, this could be something big. I mean, obviously for them, it was exile. It could be death. It could be near death. It could be sickness. It could be uh, uh, debt. It could be uh, a relational strife. It could be crisis of faith. It can be all sorts of really big things, or it can be things that are seemingly insignificant. It can just be dripping water that doesn't seem like much, but over time, it just takes its toll, right? What is your exile? What is your Babylon? What situations have or are you in that are characterized by waiting, by longing, by searching? How is God calling you to settle in in the middle of that? How is he calling you to say, hey, stop fighting right now. Just settle in while I do my work. Allow God to do what only God can do in Babylon, in our exile. How can we surrender ourselves to him and say, God, whatever work it is that you need to do right now, do it. Help me to see where I need to fight and where I need not to fight. Help me to see where I need to surrender, where I need to just repent, where I need to like, just say, God, I am so sorry for trying to fight against you as you're trying to do this. How can we embrace and trust the process that God might be using, uh, using to draw us closer to him? And then how can we work for the good of our city while we wait, right? A lot of times it's kind of like, well, I'm having these struggles. I'm having these struggles. I'm having these struggles. And, and, and God says, yeah, you are too. And, and guess what? All the people around you are too. So maybe look for the good of them. Take our eyes off of ourselves and look to the good of our city. What was really cool is, is over Thanksgiving, the rescue mission in downtown Salt Lake, we're actually going to have them share this morning, and I forgot to have them do it, and we had so many things going on. So this is a great opportunity to tell this story. But we had um, uh, Chris and Ryan and Gabe and Dana, it was you four, correct, um, went and led worship at the rescue mission on, on Wednesday uh, afternoon. And I mean, hundreds and hundreds of homeless people came through the rescue mission for a, for a, like a really, really good Thanksgiving dinner. 
And, and the people would come through. I've been up there before and they come through and they're, they're doing that. And what's amazing is, is, I mean, they're good musicians, right? And, and they're up there singing praises to God as these people. They're blessing the city. They're blessing the, down, the downtrodden, the hopeless, right? And it was really fun. I hope it's okay, but it was, it was really cool to, to see a note that somebody actually gave Gabe, right? And, uh, or to Ryan or whoever it was, gave it to Chris. One, one of the four, I was 25% likely to get it right. Um, but it was just cool because it was just a heartfelt thank you for doing this, right? How can we take our eyes off of ourselves and bless the city, work for the good of the city as we wait? How can we pray? How can we use our gifts, our skills, our resources to make the world a better place as we wait? How can those actions demonstrate the hope and the faith that we have? So that's the meaning and message of Christmas. That's one of the, the messages, right? We have a couple more coming in December. But that's a huge foundation of Christmas is hope. What are we waiting for what are we putting our hope in? Our prayer is that we find our true hope in the promised one, the mighty God, Jesus. If that speaks to you, I'm excited. If, if you're kind of like, yep, that's a reminder of what I believe. That's where I'm at. That's who I want it. That's, let, let's keep going. If maybe, if maybe you're kind of like, ah, oh, this is interesting. I haven't ever really thought about it. Let's talk. Let's don't don't waste the opportunity for God to draw you to himself. Talk to me, talk to anybody here, right? Let's dig into what it means to find our hope in the mighty God, Jesus. If you're kind of like, yeah, no, nah, I don't, I don't. Let's still talk because God wants you. God loves you. God gave everything for you. And we can find true hope in him. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your hope. I thank you for your love. I thank you for the fact that, that you call us to yourself. Not just that initial promise, not just during the heyday, but especially in the low times, in the times where, where all we have is to look for hope. God, help us to see how we can find our ultimate hope in you. God, the season is we're putting up decorations as we're getting gifts, as we're, we're making all sorts of plans. Even as a church, we have so much stuff going on. God, don't let us lose sight of what it's about. Help us to remember your love, your sacrifice, the God that, the, the fact that you came into your own creation as the solution, as the savior, as the fulfillment of our hope. God, help us to surrender to that. God, like we talked about last week, when we live with eternity in view, God, all of a sudden things here on earth, the bite, the edge is taken away because God, eternity with you is going to be amazing. And so God, help us to be overwhelmed and filled with that joy and that hope. God, we love you and praise you in your name. Amen.